On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about the loony because it is taken off. You know, we, we love when the loony gets to be a nice high number because we can travel and get good value for our money, but we're not traveling now. So is this a good thing or not as good as it might otherwise be? We'll talk about that. We're also going to talk about baseball, about the strikeout, which is seemingly taking over the game of baseball. Is this a bad thing? Well, we'll talk about that too. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Don't know if you've been noticing this because we generally really pay attention to how the Canadian dollar is doing during travel season. If you, if those times of years when people really go away, cross the border, go to Florida, go on a cruise, whatever else, that, that's when a lot of people really notice the dollar because we say, oh man, I need it to be good. So I get, you know, a, a cheaper trip. Well, it is really good right now. I don't know if you're paying attention, but it's really good. The loonie is trading above 83 cents these days, a highest level in six years. So the question is, why is this happening, first of all? And two, under our current circumstances, is this a good thing? Because we're not traveling, but with everything else going on, is this a good thing? Well, let's bring in Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business, who is our man who can answer all of our economic questions and does regularly here on the show, which we're always appreciative of. Marvin, thanks for doing this today. Glad to be with you. Why is our dollar doing so well when you and I have talked innumerable times on this show and your answer almost every time we've talked about the loony is the loony is tied to oil? Well, oil is not doing exactly very well right now. So why is our dollar doing great? Well, first, I have to tell you about the Scott Radley curse, uh, and I'm going to let your viewer, your listeners know Oh, that did it drop you, right before we came on? <laughs> you contacted me earlier today to say, would I be free tonight, and wouldn't you know that today it's dropped down to below 83 cents U.S. It had a bad day on the market today, still over 82, but not quite as high as it was flying yesterday. Uh, well, actually, oil is having a great time. You know, uh, people have forgotten very quickly how the world has changed in a year. On April 20th of 2020, oil prices in the world went negative, meaning you had to pay somebody to take right. a barrel of oil off your hand. In fact, it got so low, it got down to negative 37 U.S. dollars. Today, oil is flirting at 65 U.S. dollars a barrel. That's even above the target price that OPEC set for it. So oil has gone up quite dramatically just in the last few months, and part of that is why the Canadian dollar has flown higher. Now, there are two other arguments for it. Canada, for good or bad, is tied to a primary economic activity, like we're cutting down logs to make paper or we're mining... Uh, copper ore or gold ore, and right now, all of those basic commodities are doing very, very well in the market. Price of copper is up, the price of steel is up, price of lumber is up, so you add that to the price of oil, that's also positive news for us. And then last but not least, uh, our relatively new governor of the Bank of Canada, a fellow by the name of Tiff Macklem, uh, he just recently changed some views about the uh, Bank of Canada. He had stated in January that the Bank of Canada wasn't planning to move interest rates for all of 2021, all of 2022. It wouldn't be until 2023. But just recently, in a couple of speeches, he's saying, you know, the economy in Canada is bouncing back so quickly, I think we might start moving interest rates in the summer of 2022. 
not this summer, but next summer. Now, that's quite a different song than what the Federal Reserve Board in the United States is singing. They're actually saying they don't think they're going to move interest rates until 2023. So global interest in Canada and Canada's economy has peaked. Hmm, maybe things are going better there than we had realized. And suddenly, with all eyes turned on Canada, you put all of that together, and that's why our dollar at the moment is sailing. Uh, broke through the 80-cent barrier. Nobody really paid a lot of attention in Canada. Got through 81, 82, now over 83. And really the question we're asking is, okay, we're happy at this point, but we don't really want it to get too much higher or suddenly Canadian goods become more expensive to the rest of the world. So my sweet spot for this would be to see the dollar stabilize between 80 and 85 cents U.S. I realize if you're a consumer, you want it parity. You want to be able to get the maximum spending, but to keep Canadian dollars, or excuse me, Canadian goods uh, competitive in the world market, somewhere between 80 and 85 would be a great sweet spot. I must say, before I pick up on that point, a, a, the, a guy named Tiff, was, it seems like he was born to be the, the the governor of the Bank of Canada. That's a governor of the Bank of Canada name, Tiff. I'm just, anyway. It actually um, feels more like a country club name. Well, that know, too, uh, but, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, it, free it, for tennis this afternoon, <laughs> Tiff. We need to get in a fast <laughs> nine at the 18. That's exactly what it sounds like. He's just sitting thick in old money is what it sounds like. Anyway, um, okay, so let's go back to where the dollar is right now because we would, under normal circumstances, uh, again, because we like to travel, we would say, oh, great, a high loony means we can get more value for our money. Everything right. is good. Right now, because we are stationary at home, is is this a good time? Is there ever a bad time, first of all, for the loony to go up? But is this a good time for the loony, or does it really not help or hurt us? Well, as we are coming back out of the pandemic, and, and again, okay. I have to say this to people, we are not in a recession at this point. We were in a recession in the first half of 2020. We're in that part of the curve we call recovery. Now, the recovery is a bit stop and start because we're into a third wave. We're still locked down. Many sectors of our economy are not functioning as they were, but we're into this recovery area. So we don't want to do anything to upset the recovery. And the closer the Canadian dollar gets to the American dollar in terms of world trade, that's not good news. So we don't mind a little appreciation. Okay, uh, yeah, don't mind it. Get into, as I say, 81, 82 cents. As long as we're at a bit of a discount, it keeps our goods competitive in the marketplace. For people out there listening to us, even if you can't travel, if you're thinking you may want to travel, say, during the fall or winter of this year, I don't necessarily think it would be wrong for you to buy some American dollars right now, um, especially, again, if it gets back up, if it recovers tomorrow or, or Thursday or Friday, uh, if it gets up to closer to 83 cents. You know, I've, I've actually picked up some American currency myself, even though I don't plan to spend any of it right away, because you never know, things can change. Marvin, I don't know if it was a week or two weeks or three weeks ago, you were on here and we were talking about cryptocurrency, Bitcoin yep. and the like, and trying to explain it. If anyone didn't catch that, we're not going to go into the whole explanation of what it is now. For those who don't know, go to 900CHML, go to shows, go to the Scott Radley Show page. You can find it there, somewhere in there. Uh, listen to the whole thing. Marvin was excellent explaining it. Well, after we explained this and talked about how this is taking off in the last week or two, Bitcoin in particular has taken a bit of a nosedive, lost half of its value in about two, two and a half weeks. Other cryptocurrencies are now being dragged down. Mm -hmm. What is going on? <laughs> well, I'd like to blame the Scott Radley curse again. If again. I could. But uh, in this situation, um, 
cryptocurrency is a funny thing. It's a funny thing that kind of defies some explanations. The best I can use as a parallel is how in sports suddenly everybody loves a team and we jump onto the bandwagon and then just as fast as we jump on, sometimes we jump off that bandwagon. Well, that's kind of what happens with cryptocurrency. For a little while, it just seemed that everybody fell in love with Bitcoin, led by the head cheerleader, Elon Musk, the founder of Tesla, and then ever since he appeared on Saturday Night Live a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> his tweets have become more negative. Well, we're not going to accept uh, uh, cryptocurrency uh, at Tesla anymore. And, you know, I'm still working with the people at Dogecoin. And, and all of a sudden, the public perception of these cryptocurrencies have gone the other way. Now, Scott, I wish I could tell you that this is an unusual thing. But if you were to look at a 10-year chart or if, there isn't, if it's not 10, 8-year chart of Bitcoin, it goes through these swings like you're riding a roller coaster. Uh, there are moments, there are months where you can't seem to do anything wrong with it, and then there are other months where everything you gain just falls away. We don't see anything like that with what I'll call regular currency, the Canadian dollar, the U.S. dollar, the euro or the pound. None of that happens there, but cryptocurrency does it because of this bandwagon effect. Everyone's in love then everyone's not in love. And today, no one seems to love any of the cryptocurrencies. Ether is down, Dogecoin is down, Bitcoin is down. Not quite half, about 40%. But mind you, again, if you were to look at the chart, all we've done is gone back to the value of a Bitcoin in January. So this has just a, been a four-and-a-half-month roller coaster, and we've just got back to where we were at the start of the year. But there are people... Maybe not a lot of people, but there are people, you can read them online, you can read their stories, they talk about it. They want this, at some point, to be an established everyday currency that people will use for everyday buying, everyday commerce. I look at what's happening here and I think this sounds still to me much less like a regular everyday currency than a high-risk stock that you're gambling on. Well, or, or high-risk commodity, absolutely. So my answer to those kind of people is I don't see it at this point. If this is going to become our currency of the future, it needs to settle down and be stable. You can't gain 40% one month and lose 40% the next month. No one's going to do that. The Canadian dollar doesn't do that. What is much more likely of the future is that the Canadian dollar and the U.S. dollar and the euro and the pound will become digital currencies themselves. They'll stop printing them. They'll stop minting money, whether it's coins or printing bills, and we'll just do all of our transactions online. They'll give you all the convenience of Bitcoin, but it'll also be all digital. The only thing that you don't have that you do get with a Bitcoin or cryptocurrency is the ability to conduct transactions without the government looking over your shoulder. And, yeah. and I suppose if you're one of those people who want to you know, buy your, your cigarette boat so that you can you know, fly across the lake or something like that, but I don't want the government to know, well, okay, you're going to be disappointed because I don't think Bitcoin is going to become the world standard uh, uh, and allow you to get away with those transactions. But we will have digital currency, and we will have it sooner. I predict before the end of this decade, and I realize if you like your coins and you like your bills, you don't like what I'm just telling you, but before the end of this decade, those dollars will be digital, and we'll no longer be printing currency. But in terms of cryptocurrency being the future, Gosh, I still think the jury's out on that. Well, and, and you just point to Elon Musk, and it's a really interesting story. For those who don't know, he, he was on Saturday Night Live uh, two weeks ago, 
And in on weekend update, he was he he made some off the cuff quip about well maybe not off the cuff it may have been scripted it's hard to know but uh, about cryptocurrency and immediately there's this massive reaction that you're like wait a second you know he's on a comedy show right that, so but nonetheless uh, it had this huge impact on the on the on on the value of it if Justin Trudeau stood up in Parliament tomorrow and said you know the Canadian dollar sucks. Truly, it, it, like he would not have the same impact as Elon Musk making a quip about cryptocurrency, would he? Right, and you know, he, again, you said he's on a comedy show. He was playing a character. He was not playing Elon Musk. He was playing a character. And on this, they have this news-like program called Weekend Update. He was there to try to explain cryptocurrency. And of course, what he tried to demonstrate is that most experts on cryptocurrency are kind of talking through their hat and don't know what they're saying. But he did such a convincing job, and maybe because he's not really an actor, people couldn't separate Elon Musk playing a character from Elon Musk, the character that he is normally. And you're absolutely right, it turned. I will say that the Prime Minister of Canada or the President of the United States or whoever is in charge of the finances, they do choose their words very carefully. Mm. Because if you send the wrong signal, it can have repercussions. For instance, that's why the budget of Canada always comes out after the stock market closes on the day they present it, so that at least people have got eight hours, 12 hours to digest the news rather than just you know, knee-jerking whatever they hear. So we are aware of it, but, but Elon Musk, because he's the poster boy for a cryptocurrency at the moment, along with poster boy for some technology things, you know, if he loves something, everyone loves it if they don't. It's, again, a bit like that GameStop thing we talked about a few months ago and Wall Street bets. People can fall in love and they can fall out of love, and that's terrible from an investment standpoint. Marvin Ryder from the Negroot School of Business. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for taking some tonight. Glad to be with you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. As I say, if you're a baseball fan, you have probably noticed changes in the game over the past few years. Number one on that list probably probably is strikeouts. ESPN reported the other day, and I, I had to sit and think about this one for a second. There, In April, there were more than a thousand more strikeouts in Major League Baseball than there were hits in Major League Baseball. And this is not new. Year after year, the number of strikeouts is going up and up and up records every single year. This doesn't sound like it's, I mean, maybe if you love pitching, but this doesn't sound like it's great for a game that is trying to be exciting and grab new fans. Want to bring in Mike Wilner. You know Mike. Mike is, was the voice of the Toronto Blue Jays for a long, long time. He was the guy who talked to the fans for a long, long time. Now he is a columnist with the Toronto Star writing about the Blue Jays, and he joins us now. Mike, how are you tonight? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me. I listen. I'm thrilled to have you on. It's it's about time. But you know, you were on another station, so it didn't really work. Once upon a time, but um, you know, I know. And listening to you on that other station at times, uh, as you called games, I know you are a fan of a good pitcher's duel. But are you a fan of endless strikeouts in baseball? Just watching guys whiff after whiff after whiff. Yeah, not especially. But I mean, I. I'm not sure it's, I mean, strikeouts can be exciting, um, but uh, I don't know if it's quite whiff after whiff after whiff, although I know what you're, what you're saying. Um, it's, it's just gotten so much harder to hit over the last few years, and, and that combined with the fact that, you know, strikeouts, hitters used to be embarrassed to strike out. They, mm-hmm. they, they used to be this real effort to put the ball in play, and now... Um, you know, strikeouts are out, and sometimes they're they're better. 
uh, because you don't hit into a double play, but that's definitely gone away from the game where a guy doesn't want to strike out. Um, and it can, it can lead to some real slogs. Um, but, but also there can be some tremendous excitement with some, with some of them, not when you're seeing 40 a game. Well, yeah. And, and I mean, right now, uh, again, according to ESPN, they're averaging major league baseball is averaging 18 strikeouts a game, which I mean, it, it seems like that's an awful lot and maybe, you know, maybe that's not, maybe, maybe for a lot of people that seems about right. Maybe they like the fact that there's that many, but you know, Mike, one of the things that I think drew a lot of us and a lot of people even before us into the game was there was a lot of action. There was a lot of stuff happening in the field, and now it seems a lot of that has, well, not a lot, of an amount of that has gone away in favor of either the home run or the strikeout. Yeah, that's fair to say. Uh, and, and I don't necessarily believe that action in a vacuum is a good thing. I think that, you know, I'd rather see a good battle that ends in a strikeout and a walk than see a first pitch pop-up or, or a lazy fly ball or a routine grounder or something like that. But there's definitely less action in the game now than there's ever been. Um, and a lot of that has to do with, well, a few things. A, the fact that pitchers are just so good now. Uh, two, the shift and hitters deciding to try to hit over it instead of trying to hit around it. And, and something that people really never talk about is that, you know, when baseball players go to arbitration, which mm-hmm. is their way to, to make money between year four and year six of their careers after spending three years basically making the minimum, which granted is way more than most humans make in a year, but, <laughs> um, you know, their, their chance to make some real dough arbitration arbitrators are, um, they, they have a list of things that they take into account when deciding how much money to give a player. Home runs are on that list. Strikeouts are not. Um, you know, a ground ball that moves a runner from second to third is not rewarded in arbitration. A home run is. Driving in runs is. So uh, that's, that's another one of the reasons that these guys are, are going home run or bust. Let's go through, I want to go through a bunch of the things you've just talked about, because you've touched on a number of different things that are at play in this. Uh, and, and let's go back to the one you started with, which was, there was a time when it, I don't know if it, I don't know if embarrassing is the right word, but there was a time when it was seen as a failure to strike out much more than it is now. When did that change? How did that change? I don't know. You know what? It's, it's a good question. I think it started to change, um, a long time ago in the maybe eighties or nineties, um, you know, you had Jose Canseco who would be a 40, 40 guy, hit 40 homers, steal 40 bases, strike out a hundred plus times. Um, Jim Tomey is, is another great example uh-huh. of this three true outcome hitter where, uh, when, what that means is far more often than not, they're going to either walk, strike out or hit a home run. And a guy like Jim Tomey, would regularly put up a 400 on base percentage, which is great, would regularly hit 35, 40 home runs, which is terrific, would regularly strike out close to 200 times. And, and it didn't matter. Um, you know, there was the, the money ball revolution went way too far that way at the beginning um, where, you know, you had teams not worrying at all about defense, 
there was a famous quote that you could put eight stakes out in the field uh, behind a pitcher, and it, it didn't matter as long as they got their hits and they got their walks. And a lot of teams really concentrated on getting these three true outcome guys, and that led to an increase in strikeouts because you had more guys who just struck out a ton. It also led to an increase in home runs. And gradually, as you know, batting average sort of faded as an important measure of a hitter, um, people stopped caring. Uh, and it would be okay if they hit 230 and struck out 190 times as long as they had a 360 on base and hit 30 homers. And had high exit velocity and good launch angle and all the other things that people love to talk about. And Well, those things are, are good in a vacuum, though. Like right. harder exit velocity, I know a lot of people like to take shots at that stuff, but the harder you hit a ball, the greater a chance you have of getting a hit, um, whether it stays in the ballpark or not. And launch angle, you... You, you know, we used to just call that a good swing. Now we call it, we talk about launch angle and exit velocity because we're learning more things. I want to jump to something else you just said, because you dropped in Moneyball, and I'm glad you did, because this is something that's, uh, that I've wondered about with the strikeouts for a while. Moneyball, I think everyone's seen the movie by now with Brad Pitt. If they haven't, you should, because it's a fantastic movie. But the idea behind Moneyball was, that we're going to look at baseball differently, the Oakland A's, and we're going to we're going to focus in on areas where other people are underappreciating assets. So for them, it was rather than always hitting home runs or whatever, we're going to have guys who get on base and score runs. And that's that was an area of underappreciated assets so we can find guys for low money. That worked for a lot of teams. They tried to latch onto that, Mike. So understanding that if the money ball philosophy is simply finding what others aren't doing well, why has no team, now that everybody is doing what you've just described, why is no team saying, you know what, the underappreciated asset right now is the guy who is the, the team of guys, the lineup of contact hitters who will put the ball in play and hit singles and doubles maybe and still walk a lot. And why, don't, why isn't there a team out there that has decided, you know what, we're going to build a team that way and go against the grain and try and win? You know what? I, I thought that might happen after, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, after the Kansas City Royals won the World Series in 2015. I thought we were going to see teams built on Scrappy contact hitters with a lot of power, and with not a lot of power, and with a good bullpen uh, or a great bullpen like the Royals had, because generally every pro sports league is a copycat, and they do what the champions before them did. But I think the reason that we haven't seen it is because that kind of team scores runs really inefficiently. Like, it takes three hits to score a run, whereas it takes one home run to score a run. Um, you know, when you're, if you're building a team that needs a bunch of rallies to score and doesn't necessarily, um, isn't necessarily set up well to have big innings, you're not going to score that, that often unless you do have all these guys hitting 320, 330, which is really, really difficult to find with getting on base all the time. I think that, that, you know, now that, front offices are run by um, more often run by Ivy League educated baseball geeks and I consider myself to be a baseball geek so I don't I don't use that as a pejorative term uh, I'm definitely not Ivy League educated but <laughs> uh, um, 
but now the baseball teams are being run by those guys who have the MBAs and who have backgrounds in math and finance. They're looking for efficiency. And Moneyball was a way to um, take advantage of the inefficiencies in the market, uh, get the high on base guys that people weren't looking at, get the guys who didn't look like athletes who weren't especially fast but who were good at getting on base. Um, but now they've discovered that the most efficient way to score runs is to hit home runs. And so that's, that's what they want. And the truth of the matter is, I mean, if you have a bunch of people who will occasionally knock one out of the ballpark and you get a couple a night and you happen to have a couple of people on base for one of them, you're probably going to win a lot of games. Yeah, you know, the other one that I've wondered about is um, teams, and you know, as you, you've pointed it out, I mean, there, there is some stubbornness in this, that, that teams do follow leaders and follow examples, and there will be a lot of teams that we've seen the shift where you've got well more than half the players on one side of the diamond because they know the guy, he is going to try and overpower the shift rather than take a bunt and lay it down the third base side and take what's free every single time. And I think an awful lot of people now are saying, okay, I get that you don't want Jose, Jose Batista. For example, everybody around here knows him. You don't want him bunting all the time. But, you know, you do that three or four times and probably they're going to start pulling the shift off because they're going to get tired of you getting free bases all the time. But nobody does that stuff. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I do want Jose Bautista bunting if, if he has an entire side of the infield open for him. Um, I've been an advocate many, many, many times of if the shift is on, bunt, period, every time. Because you're right. After they do it a few times, the teams will stop shifting on them. And, and that'll open other things up because they want to take it away. Or maybe they won't. And you'll just keep getting free bunt singles and have, you know, you'll hit 800. Um, <laughs> and if yeah. you hit 800 with all singles, that's still pretty damn good. Um, and, and the arbitrator might smile upon you if you hit 800 over a right. season, even though that's not, not your number one thing. Maybe. And, and, and it, you're helping your team by every time you don't get out, you're helping the team. But um, we've seen a lot of players try and not be able to do it. I mean, it's, you know, to go back to the beginning of the conversation where I said pitching has gotten so much better. Um, the guys that I remember in the eighties who were wizards with the bat and could drop down these bunts and, um, you know, hit the ball the other way and punch it over shortstop. If you're a left-handed hitter, they weren't facing, you know, 91 mile an hour sliders true they weren't facing 96 on a regular basis they weren't facing pitchers that could put it exactly where they want to or pitchers with this unbelievable movement uh that you're seeing now so it's really 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 not that easy and it 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 shows um you know every time we saw justin smoke try to bunt against the shift uh, we've seen Kevin Biggio try to do it a couple of times, and he hasn't been able to. Do it. It's 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 not that easy. So I wish it were. I I do wish they would practice it more because they definitely don't. They do these two little bunts at the beginning of batting practice, and no one really cares. But but if someone, if if there was a hitter who every time they put the shift on dropped a bunt down the other way, then that that might change things a little bit. But it also might make the opposition say, well, kept him in the ballpark, so let's keep doing it. 
Maybe. So let's go back. We got a couple of minutes left here and you've talked a couple of times, you've mentioned a couple of times just about the, the dominance of the pitching and the guys are great. There's no question. I mean, you're not even getting scouted right now. Probably. I mean, Greg Maddox, who knows if Greg Maddox gets scouted? I mean, you, you would assume he would, but I mean, okay, unless you're throwing drafted today, well, unless you're throwing high nine, mid to high nineties, you're probably not really, really getting looked at unless you're a special exception. So, and then they're bringing one in after another, after another. So what do you do, Mike? I mean, does, does baseball just say, well, this is just our lot now that we're going to have a lot of strikeouts and we're going to have a home run or a strikeout, or do you, does baseball say there's a way to fix this or to tweak it? So maybe we put some more action back into the game. Well, that's what they're talking about. And that's what the commissioner is constantly talking about. Um, You know, putting more balls in play and, pace of play not so much time of game because it is really something that you know you're seeing all these strikeouts and yet games continue to take forever uh you would you would think that wouldn't be the case but um first of all i don't know how many people it's actually really turning off to the extent that you have to act and do something about it but also i think the game sort of ebbs and flows and and adjustments go one way and then they adjust back and you have pitchers errors and you have hitters errors. And, um, you know, it goes, it goes back and forth. Um, you know, the last real hitters era we had, they were juicing, but they were facing juiced pitchers. So the, the playing field I think was, was really, really level. I think at some point, um, we'll see, maybe a team will try, uh, will discover that it's efficient to have, um, quick resolutions to at bats and they'll bring in some more contact pitchers or they'll find that it's efficient to uh, have guys try to scrap their way on base and they'll do that. But really the, the, the overarching philosophy in the game right now is that when a ball is put, if you're on defense, when a ball is put in play, bad things can happen. Mm. If you strike a guy out, no, there's not going to be a wild throw. There's not going to be a fielder who drops the ball or anything like that. So it's the, the most efficient way to, to pitch is to strike people out. The most efficient way to hit is to hit the ball in the ballpark. So we might be stuck in this for a while. Yeah. And not to sound too Kevin Costner from Field of Dreams, although another movie that people should watch if they haven't. Um, but, you know, baseball, one of the beauties and one of the challenges both of baseball is that fixing this, you don't want to start adjusting the distance of the mound from home plate or the bases or the, you know, because that that's something that has been constant. Again, now I'm sounding like Terrence Mann, but has been constant through the years. I mean, that that's what we've always had. You don't want to start fiddling with that stuff. So the easy answers are not the ones you want to latch onto with this, if you need to. I don't, and they're, they're moving the mound back in, in uh, some of the independent leagues. Uh, an inch or two, I think, and I don't know how much of a difference that's going to make, and I don't know if that'll lead to like more pitching injuries or anything like that. But look, I'm I'm sort of in the middle between a traditionalist and a new school guy, leaning more towards new school, I think. But you know, hockey changes the rules all the time. Basketball changes the rules all the time. Football changes the rules all the time. Uh, I don't know why baseball has to be the one major sport that can't. Um, I, I think that if, um, you know, uh, I think that if we started treating it like everything else, instead of, um, you know, this, like the great sanctity of the game, 
then it might get better and it might get more fun. Um, and I'm, I'm all for fun. I, I think that uh, I would love to see games done in two and a half hours. I, I would love to see uh, lots of stuff happening. I'd love to see people start to steal bases again. Um, I'd love to see pitchers throwing complete games again. Um, but, uh, but, you know, at, at some point, the decision has to be made that either this is church and it can't be changed, or it's an entertainment product that wants as many eyes. And I'm not talking about gadgets and gimmicks and whatever, home run contests to end games or just silliness like that. But, I mean, the, it, it's, it's an entertainment project, product, and if it's not entertaining enough people, it's got to be changed so that it does. Mike Wilner, you uh, you can read him in the Toronto Star, writes about baseball, writes about the Blue Jays all the time now. Uh, Mike, really appreciate you taking some time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, and you can listen to me on podcast too. Yes, yes, know. tell us where that is. I forgot about that. Where's that? Yeah. It's called Deep Left Field. Uh, it can be found wherever great podcasts are found, <laughs> and it can also be found wherever mediocre podcasts are found. Um, but uh, yeah, check it out. Uh, the, the, a new episode comes out every Thursday afternoon, and tomorrow's um, tomorrow's I'll talk to Travis Bergen and his uh, zero ERA out of the Blue Jays bullpen, and Dave Bush, who used to play for the Jays and is now the Red Sox pitching coach, and uh, Andy Freed, who was a great conversation with him, one of the voices of the, the Tampa Bay Rays. Deep left field. Excellent. Really appreciate it. Thanks for doing this, Mike. All right, thanks, and thanks for the uh, the uh, opportunity to do a, a, a bald-faced a promo as you could possibly. <laughs> Mike Wilner from the Toronto Star. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.